Lorena Krebs is the author of Medieval Ethiopian Kingship, Craft, and Diplomacy with Latin Europe. Published by Paul Grave Macmillan, the book explores why Ethiopia's Solomonic kings initiated long-distance diplomatic contacts with Latin Europe in the late Middle Ages. It traces the history of more than a dozen delegations dispatched by this powerful Christian kingdom in the Horn of Africa. In this conversation, Krebs discusses her motivation for writing the book, how the book challenges long-standing assumptions about African agency, and shares her thoughts on the current political and humanitarian challenges facing Ethiopia today. This is How We Recollect. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? Salam. Good morning. <laughs> good evening from my oh, side. Oh, yes, that's right. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? We'll have to deal with the sniffly version of myself, I'm afraid. Well, my voice can be a little raspy also, so it's totally fine. They should be in sync together just fine. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know that you have a very busy schedule. There's a lot on your plate but I'm grateful for you taking the time to talk about your book, which in my estimation is one of the most important nonfiction works published in my lifetime. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you. So I would like to talk about the book. I would like to talk about the process of writing the book. And then I want to talk about new questions and scholarship opportunities that emerge from the book. But before we get to any of that, I want to talk a little bit about you. How is it that a young, talented scholar in Germany finds herself enthralled and captivated by Ethiopian medieval diplomacy? Um, I, I don't know. Like, I think looking back, it all makes a lot of sense. But I started out... Um, So in Germany, it's pretty common that you do a bachelor's degree and that you do a master's degree. It's um, because we used to have a different kind of education system. So a lot of people go on to do a master's and I did a master's in history, Um, you know, that didn't have like the special, uh, from what I understand in America, grad school is really like it's, it's a path you choose, you know, if looking to get into academe. But I just did a master's degree in history and I had the fortune to be taught by a very unusual woman in the German academic system um, who taught the Middle Ages as seen from the Eastern Mediterranean and from the Holy Land. So the way that she presented, you know, the medieval period was always one where you had all sorts of different Christians, Jews, Muslims, and and in all of these interesting, far-reaching contacts between peoples. And so the, the way that I first got introduced to the medieval period was one where, you know, like it wasn't castles in Germany or something, um, but instead it was like amazing, um, I don't know, cultural encounters. Uh, And so when I was looking around for um, something to write my master's thesis about, um, she pointed out, you know, like uh, in the seminar, you've been always fascinated by like mentions of the Ethiopian Christians in Jerusalem. And I said, well, that's, yeah, that seems, that seems actually like a really cool topic. And I read a book by like a standard work of Ethiopian historiography, namely um, Church and State in Ethiopia by Tadesse Tamarat, one of the like greats of Ethiopian studies or Ethiopian history. And I was just fascinated because he had this whole chapter on um, Ethiopian diplomacy with the Latin West, with Western Europe. 
in the 1500s and in the 1400s even. And I, my mind was just blown away because, I mean, I had been studying like a very, like, I don't know, like a very diverse um, medieval world, but I hadn't quite assumed that there would be embassies going from a Christian African kingdom to Latin Europe um, as far as, as early as, you know, like the very early 1400s. And so I was like, oh, that looks like a really great topic. And I can read Latin and I can read all of these European sources because turns out a lot of that diplomacy actually ended up being um, preserved in archival material from Europe. So I picked that for my master's thesis. And uh, at the end, when everything was said and done, I was like, this would actually be a really cool topic to do a PhD on. This book proposes that Ethiopian rulers sent out their missions to acquire rare religious treasures and foreign manpower expedient to their political agenda of building and endowing monumental churches and monasteries in the Ethiopian highlands. Acquiring artisans and ecclesiastical wares from faraway places for religious centers would have necessarily increased their prestige within the Christian Horn of Africa following a mechanism well attested for numerous societies in the pre-modern world. Such requests from a foreign sovereign sphere were rarely caused by a shortage of indigenous labor or materials, particularly not within 15th and early 16th century Ethiopia. Here, they appear instead to be an intentional emulation of actions ascribed to the biblical King Solomon, propagated by the Solomonic Ethiopian rulers as the dynasty's genealogical ancestor in their foundational myth, the glory of kings. This very same King Solomon II is repeatedly narrated as sending envoys to another sovereign ruler to obtain both precious wares and a master craftsman to construct the first temple in Jerusalem in the Bible. The sending of missions to Latin Christian potentates appears to have been of the strategies through which the kings locally asserted their claim of rightful Solomonic descendants, and actively, if somewhat incidentally, initiated an especially noteworthy case of African-European contact in the late medieval period. I hadn't been planning to go into academe, really. It would have been great, but I mean, I didn't set out to become like a history professor. It was really important to me also that I was attached to an Ethiopian university. So we set up this, co like in Europe, they call it a co-tutel. So it's like a binational PhD um, sort of, uh, like on an individual pro uh, basis, it's like a program. Uh, and so I ended up in McKellar University, which was one of the up and coming Ethiopian universities and had a very like lively history department, history and heritage department. And uh, yeah wrote the PhD and that's basically it. <laughs> There's a whole long story I know behind that. Tell me about the process of, of working with McKellar University. Like, um, th so there were always two aspects to my PhD research. One of it was um, what I at that point called the official diplomacy. Um, so these embassies going from the Horn of Africa to Western Europe. But because I have an undergrad degree also in um, art history, I noticed that there were also these tremendous changes in Ethiopian painting and actually something that looked to be imported objects from Western Europe. And in the PhD, I called it a more like inofficial 
contacts in official like direct contacts because I didn't quite know like something else was going on there were these objects that came from Europe and they didn't necessarily come by the name by the way of diplomacy um, and you had these tremendous changes in Ethiopian art and painting at the time which scholarship said were you know like you can see my frown and you can see me make air quotes now but in scholarship, it was believed that these were due to the influence of individual Italians who established schools of painting in Ethiopia. Um, and then, of course, I mean, there's a very colonialist like process of thought under that assumption, um, as I've since like uh, spent a long time writing and thinking about. Um, but uh, so like, so there was, um, like two aspects. One of them was the written sources, but then also all of this material that seemed to give a window into a different kind of contact as, as well, which was all the more amazing and even more puzzling. And it turned out scholarship hadn't dealt with that at all beyond these hypotheses that, you know, you had these Italians that came to Ethiopia and painted there, um, which also, you know, raises so many questions. Um, so I did spend a lot of time in Ethiopia also doing field work, um, sort of like, because a lot of the material culture, a lot of the icons, illuminated manuscripts, they're still in, in situ, they're still in the monasteries and in the churches. Um, so we would go to monasteries and churches and we would ask, um, you know, clerics, do you have any, you know, like interesting old icons that you possibly you know, would want to show us. And um, we also had a lot of support from um, like the uh, the local Ministry of Tourism and Heritage Management, because um, they were also really interested in this. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, like a lot of it also was just sort of, I don't know, a, a bit of a surprise even, like we found a couple of icons that clearly were part of this, I mean, you could call it like an Ethiopian Renaissance, if you will, um, uh, that hadn't been documented at all and which were just like raising so many more questions about like what was going on there? Like where were all of, like what, what was happening? Why was this court or why was um, this art being so very like hybrid and combining all these different influences and even like objects that clearly came from other places, but then had inscriptions on them in Ge'ez. So they had been, as it said in the inscriptions, even gone through royal hands. So you had, for example, an Ethiopian king who donated an icon that had come from Crete to a monastery in Northern Ethiopia. And that's also just really very, very cool. But what does it mean? You know, like, why did he do this? And these were all the questions that were sort of, um, that, that, that came up during my PhD research, but which have taken me like the better part of the last decade to find possible answers or hypotheses to answer them. Our two African sources, the homily and history of the patriarchs, especially stress the central importance of relics, ecclesiastical garments, and items for these early diplomatic contacts. It remains puzzling why the chalice from the treasury of St. Mark is named in sources from Venice and Ethiopia, yet the two relics described in detail by Ethiopian and Egyptian texts, the true cross and the body of one of the children killed by Herod, are not. 
Venetian records of these items may simply not have come down to us, or the items were acquired subsequently by the Ethiopian delegation on its way back to the Horn of Africa. These first embassies from the Ethiopian court were thus not motivated by a desire to establish deep and lasting diplomatic ties with one polity or the other. Instead, they appear driven by an interest in sacred and ceremonial goods. Another factor was the acquisition of artisans predominantly trained in the crafts of construction and ornamentation. The rapturous descriptions of the homily demonstrate how the very foreignness of many of the items brought back from Italy endowed them with a special kind of sanctity in Ethiopia. Other contacts were similarly driven by the desire to experience sacred sites in the Latin world, a number of which were dedicated to saints of African origin. Lastly, it is significant that early intercontinental diplomacy was initiated and wholly maintained by the Ethiopian side. These African Christians approached the Latin West selectively, deliberately, and purposefully to obtain treasures bearing witness to a faith shared with the foreign but indistinct realms of Franklin. So for those who are not familiar with the term Solomonic dynasty, that is the the launch point or one of the launching points for your book. So um, the Solomonic dynasty is simply a a new um, Christian dynasty that came to power in the Ethiopian Eritrean highlands or what is nowadays the Eritrean Ethiopian highlands uh, in 1270 AD. And uh, within a couple of decades, this like is it, there have been different Christian kingdoms and entities in this region mm-hmm. since late antiquity. Um, but this new dynasty uh, did three things. So they greatly consolidated um, their power. They, they expanded into what in other um in other circumstances would normally be called an empire in the sense that if you, and I mean, this can be very violent. That's also important to point out that uh, they extended their uh, realm also through force um, and uh, annexed um, like tributary realms. Um, So we have within a couple of decades, like a really substantial large um, kingdom that is being ruled by this Christian dynasty. Um, And this Christian dynasty does two things. It also traces its heritage back to late antiquity, to the kingdom of Aksum, which was also like a really influential Christian kingdom, especially in the sixth century when it briefly even uh, ruled parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, And it also, and this is why they're called Solomonic, um, it has this um, dynastic myth of origin, which says, we are the descendants of King Solomon and well, King David and King Solomon from the Bible, because as you know, in the Old Testament, um, the queen of Sheba, who is identified as an Ethiopian queen um, in this Ethiopian myth of origin, um, goes to Jerusalem, meets Solomon, he seduces her, there's a baby, she goes back to her land, i.e. the Ethiopian highlands or Ethiopian Eritrean highland plateau, Um, She gives birth to a son who, when he's a man, goes to meet his his father. 
Um, and, you know, Solomon accepts him and, and says, you're my heir. Uh, and uh, then this son, who's called Menelik in the um, Ethiopian version, does something, you know, a little bit uh, daring, namely he takes the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is like a very, very, very sacred object. Uh, and he transfers it back, he brings it back to his mother's realm, where he then becomes the king. Um, and that has like big implications because taking this Ark of Covenant from Jerusalem and the Holy Land to um, his kingdom in the highlands of the Horn of Africa basically transfers God's goodwill and, and, and might and, you know, the, the, the who's the chosen kingdom here uh, by God um, to, this, to this new place. Um, so this dynasty who comes to power and who really consolidates and, and expands, uh, expands and consolidates this huge kingdom um, within just a few uh, decades also sees itself or tells itself, narrates itself as being especially appointed by God, chosen by God. And that there, I mean, there's in the Middle Ages, there's many different kingdoms and dynasties who claim at least like a spiritual connection with King David and Solomon from the Bible, because they are, of course, like these larger than life biblical figures. But these Solomonic Ethiopian kings, they also claim like a genealogical link. So they're not just spiritual heirs, but they're the actual true genealogical heirs. Um, and that like sanctions their kingship and that makes them especially appointed by God. Story of Ethiopian Latin Christian contacts in the late Middle Ages begins with a pair of trespassers and suspicion. It comes to us through an Ethiopian source known as the homily on the wood of the Holy Cross, composed by a writer who chose to call himself Abba Karakos, almost certainly a pseudonym. Remarkably, this homily tells us the Ethiopian side of the first diplomatic encounter with the Latin West and describes the developments leading up to the dispatch of the very first Solomonic embassy, which arrived in Venice in the summer of 1402. The text was first published by the Italian philologist Osvaldo Reneri in 1999. It is a religious text, a homily. Such texts were read, copied, and disseminated to inform both intellectual elites and the broader public on matters of the faith. The genre enjoyed wide popularity in medieval Ethiopia. Many local compositions contain valuable historical information underneath layers of spiritual exegesis and religious commentary. This specific homily was primarily composed to describe and glorify important relics brought to Ethiopia in the early 15th century, ecclesiastical treasures that had arrived as a result of the very first Solomonic embassy to Latin Europe. The version that has come down to us is a late 19th or early 20th century handwritten parchment copy of a late medieval manuscript. This might astonish medievalists more accustomed to European sources, but is of little surprise against the backdrop of the living manuscript culture of the Ethiopian church. The author's minute descriptions of dozens of precious objects, some of which we also find described in other late medieval sources, reveal him as a contemporary to the events, or 
as someone who, at the very least, saw and studied the objects brought back from Europe. His cohesive account offers up a window into Solomonic motivations for this exchange, or at least how the very first Ethiopian mission to the Latin West was framed and intentionally disseminated within 15th century Ethiopian society. So, I mean, it's also important to point out here that scholarship for the last, let's say, even a hundred years has um, floated this idea that all Ethiopian diplomacy with the Latin West was, or with Western Europe was motivated by an ostensible, and I say stress, I stress really, ostensible Ethiopian desire or need for European quote unquote technology um, and or skills uh, and uh, I found, I mean, in the sources, I didn't quite find that because what we find is that the Ethiopian rulers are actually addressing themselves at eye level um, to kings in Europe um, and are inquiring after artisans, carpenters, stonemasons, especially painters. Those are not technologists. They're craftspeople who can make beautiful things, right? And they also want to obtain relics and they want to obtain precious objects um, to put in their churches, which, I mean, is par for the course. You have that in Europe or amongst different European courts all the time. Um, that's never a sign of a, a kind of like weakness or like a, a lack of something. It is basically engaging in an interchange with your peers, right? And also showing how like how far your arm goes, like, like basically how, how, how large your outreach is, your context, the wealth, West. But I mean, even beyond that, in the Bible, in the book of Kings and, uh, you know, in the book of Chronicles, you have this story that Solomon wants to build the first temple, which his father, you know, wanted to build, started to build, but couldn't do. And in order, because the first temple, of course, I mean, it, it is the holiest, most important building. Um, and Solomon, in order to do that, because he struggles quite a bit with this, like, how do you do something that is such a big challenge, that is such a big task? He sends uh, an embassy to King Hiram of Tyre, so to a different king, and says, please send me a master craftsman um, so that this man can work with my own master craftsman that I have here to try to tackle this impossible task and build this perfect temple. Um, and I think there's a clear uh, connection here for this dynasty that propagates itself and sells itself, so whose whole kingship is sanctioned by this idea of Solomonic descent. But they would also reach out and say, can you send us master craftsmen? Because at that same time, they are building these important religious centers, churches and monasteries, especially in areas that they have comparatively recently integrated into their kingdom. So to, to demonstrate their Christian rule, um, to send a very physical message, if you will. Um, and uh, of course, like having a foreign craftsman to work on these big royal projects would in a way like mirror the actions of Solomon in the Bible. Um, so I think that that is very obvious. I think that was even very apparent to local um, Ethiopian subjects at that time. Because, I mean, you're in an environment where these kings style themselves 
like this. This is how their kingship is disseminated and, and sanctioned and, and narrated to the people that they rule. And we find all of these little remarks in Ethiopian Chronicles where it says like, King Zarayakov was acting like so, uh, King Solomon in the Bible. Or so for example, King Zarayakov, um, his father is called also Dawit, which is a bit on the nose. So, um, and it says in, in his chronicle um, that, uh, you know, like the father Dawit started to build a church, but was unable to do so. And then his son Zarayakov, like David and Solomon in the Bible, you know, Zara Yaakov actually sets about and builds the church that his father was unable to build. So we find even in these 500, 600 year old Ethiopian chronicles, we find these very clear links. So I think that was the reason for reaching out, not like a lack of technology or a, a need um, for something that you didn't have, but potentially even like a ritualistic, like, like, like a, it didn't even, I think, need to be successful. Because I think the very act of dis, uh, like sending out an embassy would have uh, made it clear to people at home what was going on here. It would have cemented or confirmed this like whole dynastic story. And if you got something out of that embassy, if, you, if something actually came back from Venice or from like the Iberian Peninsula from Valencia, that would have been even cooler. But I think first of all, the audience was the audience back home. Um, so everybody who was living in that kingdom uh, to whom these rulers addressed themselves and said, you know, like we're obviously really Solomon's heirs. The consolidation of Solomonic power over most of the central Northeast African highlands and ushered in substantial religious reform, as well as the translation and flourishing of local religious literature. This period also witnessed the advent of monumental local building activity. It saw the construction of dozens of prestigious royal churches and monasteries, material testament to the king's supreme political claim to power, and a physical assertion of each sovereign's rightful and just Christian rulership. These royal religious centers naturally not only had to be built and ornamented, but also had to be endowed and furnished with precious books, ecclesiastical garments, fine fabrics, liturgical utensils, relics, and eventually also icons. Because of the, the various religious traditions that are in the area, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, probably wasn't hard for people to accept that story, I would argue. Yes, and I mean, of course, um, Solomon and David from the Bible, like they appear in all of the three, like, religions of the book, right? So they're in present in Judaism, they're present in Christianity, they're present in Islam. So there's even like a tra transcendent element to this claim of heritage and descent here. Um, and I mean, this is also an important, important point to stress because a lot of the older, uh, the older scholarship um, always speaks of uh, like medieval Christian Ethiopia as this Christian island in a sea of like uh, quote unquote infidels or Muslims or whatever, a Christian island. And I think that's really not the case um, because what we do find is this very heterogeneous multi-faith kingdom in which also 
um, Muslims uh, were having very high function. So several of the Ethiopian ambassadors who get sent out to these courts in Western Europe, they're actually Ethiopian Muslims. Because, um, uh, you know, uh, they, they had high functions and the emperor trusted, or the king trusted um, them. And uh, so I, I think that is also really just important to, to keep in the back of the mind that you had this diverse kingdom where the elite that, or that the, 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 um, the, the, the royal family, of course, um, and, and the kings, uh, they strongly, of course, identified as Christians and as these heirs of Solomon. But that is like under the, the umbrella of their rule, for better or for worse, you had all different kinds um, of people in this kingdom, uh, which then again also, I think, explains the need for these churches because they were the centers and the focal points of this Christian dynasty. To, to basically remind also people of other faiths that the king at the top of the pyramid of rule was this Christian Solomonic king. Three Latin sources indicate that the Ethiopian embassy to Venice was not the only one sent out from Dawid's highland court to Italy at the turn of the 15th century. Instead, these texts which are entirely unconnected to the Venetian documents, the homily, and the history of the patriarchs, suggest that the Venetian mission was one of three. Two other delegations were sent out to the Eternal City of Rome, where they arrived in the summer of 1403 and 1404, respectively. They, too, were sent to acquire religious treasures. Our first source is a letter written by Candido de Bona, an ecclesiastic usually active in Cividale de Fruili, some 80 miles to the east of Venice. In early August 1404, Candido wrote from Rome to a friend back home in Cividale. After relaying some general pieces of gossip on Italian and Roman church politics, Candido mentions the arrival of an Ethiopian delegation that he had witnessed. Quote, Three black Ethiopians from India had arrived some weeks earlier in June or July 1404. He judged them, quote, good Christians. In their dress, they seemed to him like Mennonite friars. They always carried a cross in their hand and had scarification marks on their faces. Although three black Ethiopians from India were otherwise rather vague terms for black Africans in the late Middle Ages in Europe, such additional descriptors indeed reveal the men as Christians from the Horn of Africa. Throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, travelers from Solomonic Ethiopia were noted for their practices of carrying small iron hand crosses, Franciscan-like garb, and the practice of, quote, having been baptized with fire. In this particular case, two interpreters, one a youth said to speak 17 languages, accompanied the three Ethiopians. is such a fascinating story and I have to believe it's very exciting for you. So the book, let's talk about the time period for the book. So we started in the early 15th century. So talk to me about what was happening in the early 15th century and what launched that first outreach 
to the Latin West? I think there's several layers to this, as there often is. So I think, I mean, I spoke about how within decades, this Solomonic dynasty greatly expanded um, just their physical domain, like the, 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 the place that they ruled. Um, and after having consolidated their power, which means that you don't have to constantly send in armies to basically make sure that you still stay in power and like parts that might not want to even stay in your kingdom. Um, uh, like, I think then, um, like, um, energy was also invested in increasing cultural production, um, because, like, of course, you have now more resources that you can dedicate to other things. So what we do see in the late 14th century is that we have so many more texts being composed, religious texts, um, we have a translation movement. So many religious texts get translated from um, the world of Eastern Christianity. So from Coptic Egypt, but also um, you know, from the whole Eastern Mediterranean. So you have all of this going on. So there's obviously resources dedicated to just a flourishing of culture um, and uh, like a, a, a creation of new religious texts and whatnot. Um, and that also indicates, I think, that you have resources to spare to send off then these embassies. Because, I mean, as soon as you can turn your focus inward, you can also turn it outward and very far outward again. Um, because also sending missions and embassies is always an expensive venture. So in 1402, when the first uh, Ethiopian Solomonic ambassador um, arrives in Venice, he arrives there um, with four live leopards. So transporting four live leopards all the way from the Horn of Africa to the, the Venetian Lagoon. That's quite the schlep and the logistics of it just boggles the mind because you need to, you know, like you need to feed them and you need to transport them. And you need to like uh, also, uh, although only one ambassador appears in the sources, like he can't have done this by himself. So there must have been many people involved in this venture and that costs resources again. So like not necessarily, like I, I'm not saying money because it's not necessarily money in that sense. I think it was mostly like just gold that was provided for these journeys. But uh, you, I think um, that was also something that was then possible. Um, and at the same time, we do find that Ethiopian rulers start building these churches. So we have comparatively little evidence that you had these royal churches being built throughout the 14th century. But by the 15th century, it's really like it's an explosion. Every single king builds several churches. Uh, one of them, Zarayakov, builds even nine, which is quite, like if you consider how large they can be and how long it can be, to, uh, like how long we know that it took them to complete them, um, this is massive, massive ventures. And lastly, um, there's this fantastic Ge'ez text, so it's a local Ethiopian text that gives us the Ethiopian story as it was then later disseminated and told to the Ethiopian Christians. Um, and there it says that King Dawit, um, at, the at the turn of the 15th century, um, encountered two foreign strangers, uh, two Latin Christians, so from somewhere in Europe. Um, they were trespassing and they were brought to him and according to this text, um, to establish if they're really even Christians, uh, he subject, subjects them to a religious quiz and he asks them, you know, like, where's, where's the cross that Helena found 
um, the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, they say, oh, well, all of these rulers in the Latin West, they have split it amongst themselves and it is like strengthening their kingdoms. And according to this text, Dawit then says, oh, I would actually like, like one of these pieces of the true cross for my kingdom. That would be a great idea. And he sends out one of these foreigners. Um, and we know from Venetian sources that just a couple of years later, well, just a couple of months later, actually, a man from, from Florence appears with four live leopards and says, I am an ambassador of the Ethiopian Christian king. And, you know, like the rest is history. A largely unknown history to so many people, though, which is why the book is so important, why your scholarship is so important. So the text that you're referring to, can you share a little bit about what those texts are? So um, the, the, these are two texts that I, um, that I used um, in addition to the sources we have from Latin Europe. So we have the history of the Patriarchs of Egypt, which is an Arabic um, source that has also been very well known um, for a long time. It's been edited, it's been translated into multiple languages, including English. And uh, that speaks of this Ethiopian embassy to, um, to Western Europe. Um, and it also mentions then that a splinter of the true cross was eventually brought back together with many other things, uh, another relic and, um, you know, like uh, uh, with a, like beautiful, precious liturgical objects and whatnot. Um, so we have that point of evidence, but we also have a Geur's text, which I think came to light more recently. Um, because the first time it was edited and partly um, translated into Italian was only in 1999. Um, and that seems to also tell the same story, but be much more detailed, obviously, because it's like, it's uh, more than 40 folios. So it's a really lengthy text and it's really exhaustive and it tells in great detail um, at least how uh, the Ethiopian kings wanted to have this story of their embassy and the arrival of the true cross disseminated in their own kingdom. Um, and all of this slots in really well with a lot of the European sources that we have where in, for example, Senate um, proceedings, it says, you know, like the Venetian Senate has uh, dedicated a thousand, um, a thousand pieces of gold to buy gifts for the Ethiopian ruler because he gave us four live leopards and we should also purchase gifts in return and send them back to him. Um, so, uh, and overall, there's, uh, there's a lot of sources that have been known for a very long time. So for example, these Venetian sources, they have been known in scholarship for more than a hundred years. Um, but I think uh, like connecting these different dots um, is something that, like only more recently, I think people have tried to do and, and, and tried to compare them and see what we can glean, like what are the common denominators that we can take from this. A close rereading of the source material from both Northeast Africa and Europe on Solomonic diplomacy lies at the heart of this study. The book is structured along a chronological investigation of the course of Ethiopian diplomatic outreach in the late Middle Ages. Successive chapters chart three distinct phases of Solomonic missions to the Latin West. Chapter 2 traces diplomacy's onset during the rule of Dawit II, shortly after the turn of the 15th century. 
Chapter 3 follows the envoys and agents dispatched by Dawit's sons from the 1420s to the 1450s, sent out to an increasingly charged political climate in the Latin Mediterranean. Chapter 4 examines how Ethiopian outreach tapered off and began to change by the latter decades of the 15th and early 16th centuries, when only three missions are traceable within nearly 80 years. Accepting two short examinations of Latin Christian mercantile scouts in the early 1400s and a missionary venture in the 1480s, our focus will remain firmly on the actions and interests of the kings and their ambassadors. After all, these African Christian rulers were the ones who first established long-distance diplomacy with Europe, and it was their interests and desires that maintained or halted connections in the late Middle Ages. Finally, Chapter 5 reads and interprets Solomonic diplomatic requests against the broader backdrop of Ethiopian history in the Northeast African highlands. Looking at local historical and archaeological evidence, it asserts that Solomonic diplomatic outreach was caused by the desire to acquire ecclesiastical objects, primarily ecclesiastical fabrics and liturgical items, but also relics and foreign manpower such as builders, carpenters, stonemasons, metalworkers, and painters, for which there was a heightened demand in a realm concurrently being transformed through monumental building activity. Such interests were not motivated by a sense of Ethiopia's inferiority vis-a-vis the Latin West. Instead, they were driven by a desire to heighten the Solomonic ruler's local prestige by acquiring rare, foreign, and even exotic objects and labor from a distant Christian sphere as their biblical ancestor had done, and thus impressed their claims of political and religious supremacy upon their Northeast African subjects. You are challenging Mm -hmm. traditional scholarship. There's a very long tradition of, especially here in Germany, of um, Ethiopianist research. So actually in the 17th century, in the 1600s, Um, The very first university chair for Ethiopian studies was established at a university here in Germany, um, before it was Germany, actually. Um, So, uh, and and that was inspired by, of course, a lot of very Orientalist views on what Europeans at that time thought Ethiopia was, which is not the same as, you know. So research is in many ways, uh, like there's a long history of research here, but also it's been deeply influenced by, of course, Orientalist thought. And what is much worse, I think, um, colonialist um, thought that, of course, always also always trails over into racist thought. Um, So a lot of the scholars that were most productive in the 20th century, working on the history of Ethiopia, were actually in some way or other involved um, in the Italian fascist occupation of the Horn of Africa. Um, And after that failed, some of them took very high positions um, in Italy where they became professors of Ethiopian language or Ethiopian uh, Ethiopian languages or Ethiopian culture and history. And uh, of course, such writings are not necessarily neutral. And especially in the interwar period, you had important scholars like Renato Lefebvre um, who very blatantly, you know, like also wanted to argue for their present moment because the argument that they're making is that already in the 15th century, 
Ethiopia had looked to Italy for civilizational progress and for like technology and advancement. And that is of course, obviously uh, in light of this fascist occupation and attempt at colonialization, that is an argument that they're making uh, to speak to the present moment. Because if you can say already in the middle ages, Italy helped modernize and culturally you know, advance this African Christian kingdom, um, then they have always needed us and they need us even more now. The problem becomes if this thought trickles down into something that isn't as easily recognizable anymore um, as something colonialist and racist, right? Like if, if in an article from 1944, uh, Lefebvre says, well, um, the Ethiopians just did not have any indigenous um, local resources and they've always been dependent on European and especially Italian advancement, then that is very clearly racist and colonialist. Very. Very, yeah. It becomes dif difficult when 30 years later, the same, um, or 25 years later, the same um, scholar then says, well, the Ethiopians were interested in technological advancement more generally. And that technological advancement just happened to come from Italy. So it's, it's hidden more. And at some point, especially in, in the moment that also, because scholarship builds on each other, when Ethiopian historians um, refer to, for example, such an article and say, well, Ethiopian diplomatic outreach must have been connected to a desire for technology. Um, that something that began, I think, as a political argument even for the present day in the interwar, interwar period, that it then becomes a more, quote unquote, neutral established scholarship uh, opinion. And that is really detrimental because it takes off and grows its own legs. Um, and, and it's repeated and it morphs into something where it says, well, the Ethiopians wanted to have guns. And I'm like, <laughs> nowhere in the sources does it say anything about guns and even like what kind of guns are we talking about here? Um, so that is really like, a, I, I think it, it, it's one of the big challenges we have. It's, it's the same thing with what I talked earlier about this belief of like single, uh, single Italian master painters establishing schools in Ethiopia where they're teaching their Ethiopian pupils how to paint in a specific Renaissance style. I think that's a very similar um, thought process that we find here. And in my next book, I actually hope to address this because I think, I mean, it also, as a pre-modern historian, it doesn't quite make sense. You don't get, <laughs> you don't get painters who just revolutionize uh, the, the painting of a kingdom. You get patrons who hire painters to paint in ways that they like. So who has the agency here? It's not the like painter as revolutionary. It is like a patron that encourages art and art production in a specific way. And the person doing the painting is very much a client of the patron, right? And I think you do a great job of diffusing that argument. How is the rest of the academic community responding to the challenge that you've made? 
Well, I mean, this is the thing, because um, this project grew out, and, and this book now just grew out of um, so many different iterations, right? As I said, I, I wrote an MA thesis, and I wrote this PhD, and then I wrote a book draft, and I eventually deleted all of them, and I wrote this book completely new from scratch at the start of the pandemic last year, um, because it took me a long time to find my voice. I mean, I've been speaking about and thinking about um, what I, I think this Ethiopian diplomacy with the Latin West means for a very long time. But for example, in the PhD, I was really struggling because I, I could say, well, what scholarship says seems to be wrong because it's not in the sources. But back then I couldn't offer up an alternative, like, because it, it's not enough to just say, well, this is all crap. Um, you should ideally also provide an alternative hypothesis that seems more compelling, that makes like a different thesis that uh, people will say, hopefully, oh, well, that actually makes sense. Oh, that, that opens up maybe a new door uh, or a new window onto how to read this and, and, and how to maybe fathom this past culture. Um, and so because I've been speaking and thinking about this for such a long time, actually most of the scholars uh, in the field have been very positively receptive. It also helps that a lot of the old Italian fascists are dead. <laughs> I won't make any comment on that, but I understand. What I then would also maybe add is um, that I think we now see a, um, a new moment where you have um, young scholars who are taking up the mantle and many of them were trained either in African history or in medieval history uh, or even like um, classical or late antique history. Um, but for many different reasons, some of them for personal reasons, some of them like me coming, you know, by, by, by accident um, to this field, um, they're like, I think giving a new impetus to historical research and because they're also trained historians because I think a lot of the scholarship um, like uh, you for pre-modern Ethiopian history um, you had a lot of people who were actually specialized in literatures and languages um, who were also doing the historical research and there's of course like differences in discipline and methodology and uh, you know like historical inquiry and so I think we're now seeing like a really great number um, of young researchers, uh, especially also in the US, uh, who have started working on exactly this period. Um, and many of them um, are part of the Ethiopian diaspora, but also, uh, you know, like, like others. And they're, they're just asking different questions and new questions. And of course, also the field has moved on. So, um, you know, like, the, the, the type of research we in medieval studies now do is very different than it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago when Teresa Tamrat published his book. So um, I think that's also a great moment. And I'm, I'm actually like quite positive in looking to the future here. You led me to the question that I was thinking about, which was this false European narrative has made its way into Ethiopian thinking into Ethiopian scholarship to some degree. I'm curious though, just about the book itself. Is the book going to be published in Amharic or Somali or Romo or Tigrinya? Is it published in those languages yet? And if not, are there any plans to do so? 
from the very beginning, um, because this is something as somebody who spent considerable time in Ethiopia uh, and also working and, and studying and researching at an Ethiopian university, um, uh, it was clear to me that the book needed to be locally um, published as well, and ideally also in translation. Uh, and I mean, the the because it is a, the working uh, common language of the modern state of Ethiopia, um, like first of all, like an Amharic translation. Uh, and uh, I actually, together with my friend Samira, we shopped around for, uh, any, uh, for a, a translator. Um, she, she used to be a lecturer at Addis Ababa University for Amharic poetry, so she's very much an Amharic snob. Um, and it turns out, of course, like uh, academic translations can be difficult because there's so many nuances of meaning and you want to have a good, like a really good translation because a bad translation can also do harm. Um, but we found a fabulous, fabulous translator who I actually know from my time in Mekele. Um, and uh, yeah, he's been working on this, but the progress has been hindered by the current war um, to some extent, but we definitely have the plans. And uh, like, it was also important for me that the book then be published locally because um, I mean, even for your Western interested reader at the moment, the hardcover copy is ridiculously expensive. And that's sadly something that I, as an academic, I mean, I don't earn a single dime from this book and I have no influence over um, the price points that these academic publishers set these set. Um, I mean, there will be a paperback version, but even that will be like horrendously expensive if you consider um, like, for example, the, the, the average monthly salary of an Ethiopian lecturer at an Ethiopian university. So um, publishing a local translation uh, locally in Ethiopia at a locally adequate price point was like a very important um, thing for me. So we're planning on doing that. And I actually have another um, acquaintance uh, and, and fellow scholar who's interested in translating it into Tigrinya. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, so there's definitely plans and there were plans um, about this from the beginning. So going back to the book, there are some really interesting passages. Tell me about the Council of Constance. <laughs> yeah, so the Council of Constance is this. So I actually did my PhD in Constance, which is this very pretty, it looks like a postcard uh, town on the German-Swiss border. It's like on a lake and you can see the Alps in the background. So very tall snow-capped mountains most days. And, you know, um, and uh, the big thing about Constance, why it's famous, uh, maybe in European history, certainly in German history, is that it was um, the place where a council, so um, like a, a meeting of the Latin Catholic church took place to end the Western schism, which had ripped apart European Latin Christianity um, for, you know, quite a bit in, uh, in the late Middle Ages. And so we did find uh, mentions in this important chronicle of the Council of Constance. Um, there, were, there was mention of um, Ethiopian monks. And for the longest time, scholars were like, oh, maybe, you know, this chronicler has been known to exaggerate. Maybe he just wanted to make a point about how the whole world came to Constance because it was such an important council. And if the whole world comes, that elevates, you know, the importance of, of the town and of the council, and thus also of this chronicler himself. 
Um, but then other evidences started cropping up. And in total, I think I've come across five or six different sources, which all speak of these Ethiopian Christian monks. Um, and some of them actually state their names and their indeed like, I mean, cause in, in these Latin or European sources, Ethiopian can mean all sorts of things. It's not necessarily, it can be also just a blanket term for like somebody from Africa. Mm -hmm. um, but there's actually somewhere it says, well, they're from this and this region and it's clearly Solomonic Ethiopia. So we have these, I think three guys um, who were at the Council of Constance. Um, and uh, according to the sources we have, they were hanging out there and there were some difficulties in, you know, um, talking to the locals, because uh, uh, one of the sources says that they spoke no language that anybody could understand, but still they were there for a couple of months. We have a letter from the newly elected, uh, elected Latin Pope, so the Catholic Pope, who says that these uh, three guys, um, you know, they're, uh, they're called Petros, Bartolomeos and Antonios, um, that they were very good Christians and they had spent many months at the Council of Constance. And he gives them this letter that lets them freely travel um, across Europe and actually be hosted for free and gives them free passage. Um, and one of those monks actually appears a couple of months later in a different document. So um, he made his way from uh, Constance to Geneva, which is like 300 kilometers um, to the Southwest, um, which took him apparently eight months, which is, you know, like even if you belly crawl, I think you can make that journey in less than eight months. So we have some evidence that not just were they hanging out in Constance at the council for a good time, but one of them actually like really took a very leisurely route in this German-Swiss borderland, um, exploring the sites. And I mean, he had a perfect um, possibility to do this as well because he had a papal letter that said, you know, like everybody treat him nicely. He's a very good guy um, and you don't defy the Pope. We must wonder as to why these Ethiopian monks ventured north of the Alps in the first place. Had they been drawn in by the hubbub surrounding the Council of Constance, to which sizable delegations of Christians from all over Europe had traveled? Or had they heard the story of St. Maurice or St. Mauritius, the 3rd century Christian Roman African officer with the legendary Theban legion who was martyred in modern-day Switzerland? Together with his companion St. Verena, yet another African saint from Upper Egypt especially venerated in the Swiss-German borderlands, St. Maurice had long been read as a Nubian or Black African saint in the German-speaking realms of Europe. Dedicated to St. Maurice, a rotunda in the Cathedral of Constance dates back to the 10th century. It is still the primary pilgrimage destination of the town, Located on the Via Jacobi, a section of the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrimage route to St. James of Campostela dating back to the 12th century. Notably, the Via Jacobi leads the pilgrim along the foot of the Swiss Alps from Constance to Geneva, the same route Abba Antonius of Amhara must have taken on his eighth-month travels between the towns. Would have led him not far from where Black St. Maurice was martyred, according to legend. He also would have passed where St. Maurice's companion, St. Verena, lived out her life as a hermit far from her upper Egyptian place of birth. It is impossible to know 
If and why Abba Antonius and his companions set out to cross the Alps in the latter half of the 1410s, what we may assert, however, is that these Ethiopian ecclesiastics were traveling through a region early in deep ties to saints from Northeast Africa. So over time, the, the journeys change, the reasons for the journeys change over time. Um, so they change over time in that, uh, like the Dawit sends this first important mission to Venice, and then there seems to be another mission that is to Rome, and then you also have these travelers, like the monks who turn up at the Council of Constance, and uh, then there you, you have a bit of a pause, and then one like Dawit's three of Dawit's sons follow him on the throne uh, and basically rule Solomonic Ethiopia for the next uh, forty odd years. Um, and interestingly enough, every one of them seems to send also embassies to different parts in Latin Europe, but they don't send them again to Venice. They send them like one of them, Yishak, sends them to um, to the Kingdom of Aragon, uh, where King Alfonso V, who was a very prominent and powerful king in the Western Mediterranean at the time, is ecstatic to receive this embassy. Um, and uh, like, uh, there's even like a proposal for uh, like a, a double royal ma marriage that is right. being floated, right. and and we can see in um, some of the source documents that Alfonso, so the Aragonese king, was really excited about this prospect because he really wants to hear back about this double royal ma marriage with the Solomonic kings, um, and and whether this will work out, and it doesn't for a, a number of reasons. Um, and, and then his brother uh, follows him on the throne and also sends like what seems to be a mission out to the Eastern Mediterranean in this case to like a, like a place where a lot of um, uh, Genoese people are, are gathered. Uh, and then Zara Jacob comes onto the throne who's the single most impressive person in this period uh, from like Ethiopian history. Cause he is like, he rules um, for more than 30 years uh, in a manner most, like he, I, I always like to say he definitely encountered the world on his own terms because he's a deeply learned religious man, but he's also a fighter who does not back down. So um, these two things very much mark his rule, as I said, more than 30 years. And he sends missions um, again to Aragon. Um, and, you know, um, he's not interested in marriage anymore. Uh, he's interested again in relics and fine fabrics and liturgical objects because he's building these nine churches, as I mentioned earlier. So he's got a lot of, you know, stuff to do back home and he has a lot of need for precious, rare, exotic objects uh, in his churches that are meant to represent his own glory um, and the glory of God, of course. Um, the interesting thing is then that in Western Europe, uh, these kings, uh, also the papacy, the Pope, are increasingly frantic um, because they imagine Ethiopia as the realm of Prester John, who's this mythical king, mil militarily super powerful. And in this whole period, of course, you have an expanding Ottoman Empire. And uh, so Latin and Western Christendom is increasingly under attack. Um, Eastern Christendom, of course, <laughs> is literally being attacked. Um, and so you have Alfonso V and also various different popes who receive these embassies. And what they want is military support from Ethiopia. 
which at least Zara Jacob is clearly not willing to give. So we have eventually like uh, three letters sent out by the King of Aragon on the Iberian Peninsula saying like, please, please help us. And then Constantinople falls as we know. And uh, uh, Alfonso is even more frantic and saying, please help us reclaim, um, reclaim these places. You know, we need the Ethiopian Christian help, but these interests were not Ethiopian Christian interests. Like why, why fight a war in the Eastern Mediterranean? Like that was, uh, at least we can, we can assume that these requests went unanswered because also Ethiopian kings had uh, like at this time had comparatively or actually quite good relations with, for example, the, uh, the, the Sultanate um, of the Mamluks in Egypt and Palestine. So I think Ethiopian Christian rulers at the time were very much aware that their corner of the world um, had its own geopolitics and had its own like political and religious interests. And those were not the same and even possibly at odds with those of these European Christians. So, you know, it all falls apart a bit. Like earlier Ethiopian missions to the Latin West, the embassies in this second phase of contacts were treated with the utmost respect. In 1428, Alfonso V of Aragon provided considerable sums to ensure a successful future relationship with the king. Meanwhile, the papacy spared no expense to see the Ethiopian delegation safely to Naples in 1450. Aragonese documents of 1428 and 1430 illustrate just how seriously Alfonso entertained the possibility of a double royal marriage with the Solomonic court, despite the vast geographical distance and how eager, even desperate, he was to receive news from Ethiopia in both 1430 and throughout the 1450s. The dynamic between Europe and the Horn is turned on its head because they're mm-hmm. appealing to Ethiopia for this military and economic aid. Yeah, yeah, because it's also like if you consider how scholarship has narrated these um, like diplomatic encounters, it has been narrated as Ethiopia needing arms, uh, uh, Christian Solomonic Ethiopia needing arms and military alliances because it's ostensibly, as I said, this Christian island surrounded in a sea of Muslim ruled realms, right? But what we find actually, no, 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 they're good, they're good, they're fine. Um, and it's, it's Alfonso V, one of the most powerful and wealthiest kings of Western Europe at the time, begging the Ethiopian king, quite literally also for aid in money, <laughs> it says in one source. Like, what can the Ethiopian king do in money to help the Aragonese? Um, but also like military assistance. Please, please, please help us. And no, that's just not on the Ethiopian Solomonic agenda. Fascinating. So in the book, you talk about outreach to Aragon, and we see folks in Switzerland and in various other places. The story also passes through Jerusalem. Can you talk about that? So, I mean, um, Obviously, like, as I said, the, the, the kingdom of Aksum um, converts to Christianity very, very early. So in the early fourth century, 
Um, so even before, like, you know, the Roman Empire officially becomes Christian. Um, and uh, if you are a Christian realm, you do need connections to the Holy Land because this is where all of the biblical stories are centered, right? And we do find an Ethiopian Christian presence there very early. And that makes sense because Jerusalem is like a nexus for all different kinds of Christianities. And I mean, we should never forget that like Christianity was truly a, a, like an Afro-Eurasian, like nearly global religion um, in the Middle Ages, especially also like in, in, in uh, even in like the eighth or ninth century, you had like Nestorian, so like a specific um, Christian group, um, bishops that sat in Syria and corresponded with their brethren in China. And so like really huge reach. And of all of these Christianities that were centered around the Holy Land, the Ethiopians were one of them. And um, so you have Ethiopian monks in several different monasteries in the Holy Land, especially also in Jerusalem, um, but also uh, together, often sharing with uh, Coptic Christians who are basically like a brother church to the Ethiopian church, because there's some very deep and old historical links there, um, like also monasteries and like uh, pilgrims hospices. So like a hotel basically for pilgrims dotted over the Eastern Mediterranean. So you have a whole infrastructure for Ethiopian Christians to go from the Horn to the Eastern Mediterranean and travel in the Eastern Mediterranean. And from then, I mean, it's the springboard to Western Europe because you have all of these ships that, you know, like it's, a, it's also a world of trade and all of that silk and pepper and um, even like, uh, I don't know, uh, grains and, and slaves, of course, needs to be shipped from one place to the other. So if you have this infrastructure in the Eastern Mediterranean, going to Venice, for example, and from there making your way to Constance or um, other places is, uh, is actually comparatively easy. In the book, how many different trips and excursions do you reference? Of official embassies, I think, I mean, it's always the question, what do we count? And I've, in the book, I've, I think I've basically undercounted them because I wanted to be more careful because uh, I, I, I wanted to only include those where I was sure that these were Solomonic Ethiopian Christian embassies. And those are around a dozen. Um, but then, of course, you have all of these pilgrims who um, also seem to have been traveling from Ethiopia to uh, Western Europe. And some of them become accidental ambassadors. So there's a group of five Ethiopian pilgrims who want to go to Santiago de Compostela, which is, of course, like a, a very important pilgrimage center, right? Um, and uh, they get stopped because they accidentally walk into this local war between different um, different kingdoms on the uh, like in modern day Spain, um, and and they, you know, like arrive at the court of Alfonso V again, who's like, great, you guys can be my ambassador. Um, so. How do you count that? Is that a pilgrim adventure or is it also like a di diplomatic venture or is it sort of a little bit in between? And if anything, I think it shows this sort of like history of entanglement that also obviously it was easily possible for um, like groups of Ethiopian Christian monks to travel the sites of, you know, late medieval Europe at that time. 
and, and, and to, to make their way around. Um, and they turn up like in little remarks and on the margins of European sources, but they obviously were there. People are people. They move, they have curiosities, they travel. It's just weird that indigenous African agency is often surprising to people. This is also, I think, one important bit um, that uh, I think these um, Christians, uh, especially, or also Solomonic uh, Ethiopians uh, from the Horn of Africa, they saw themselves as part of a larger Christian world. And that Christian world included them in the Horn of Africa, but it obviously extended to all of the sites of Christianity and where all of the apostles and evangelists and, you know, all of the early martyrs, uh, this whole, like, even medieval industry of pilgrimage where you go to different saints' shrines. Um, it's a whole world and it stretches from the Atlantic to deep into Asia um, and India. Uh, so, and uh, I think... I mean, I'm sometimes asked what my research is maybe contributing also to medieval Mediterranean studies, because that's its own little subfield. But, well, no, it's not a little subfield. It's its own significant subfield nowadays. And um, I think my contribution is that it maybe shows us that uh, like this Christian Ethiopian kingdom uh, and at least the Ethiopian Christians that I can trace in my book saw themselves as naturally part of this larger world. And in Europe, at least, from everything I can see in my sources, they were identified as part of that larger Christian world as well. And people were maybe surprised that they spoke a different language, but as the Pope says, they're good Christians and everybody should treat them well because they've been participating in this council in Constance even. And so, um, and I think that's really important to realize that uh, like things we might now see as like incredibly important might not necessarily have always been of that significance so the christianity i think might have or appears to have clearly outweighed um any other identifying uh features or characteristics or what have you from the adoption of Christianity in the second quarter of the 4th century, the town of Aksum and the Tigrayan hinterland were home to a Christian principality in the Horn of Africa. Even after the decline of Aksumite rule in the 7th century, these northern regions of the central Ethiopian highland plateau retained their religious importance. Aksum was the site of the oldest and most important church in the Horn of Africa, and numerous monastic centers had long been established in its environs. Over the following centuries, however, the Christian successors to the Aksumite kingdom gradually moved the political centers of their realm southward. Lasta, the region in which the world-famous rock-hewn churches of Lalibela are located, formed the political heartland of the kingdom ruled by the Zagwe dynasty in the 11th to 13th century. It is really important to, to just sort of, I think, shift our focus away from reading Christianity um, because of what happens later as this like Catholic European thing, because it also neglects all of these other Christianities. The Book of Acts and the presence of the Ethiopian there, Ethiopia is not on the fringes of the story, it's right there in the middle of the story. And the, and the presence of, that, of the, 
of that person there is not treated as odd, very sort of matter of fact. And so the idea yeah. that it, that Christianity is foreign to Africa is incorrect. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's also because, I, I mean, so much of early Christianity also takes place in Egypt, right? Yeah. Um, which is, of course, part of this larger Hellenistic world. Um, and for that, that once again also speaks out to the, the fact that Egypt uh, has often, for very 20th century, 19th and 20th century reasons, been sort of taken out of context, off its out out of its African context. Um, and uh, if you just, I, I always tell my students, look at the map. Um, we're not surprised to have Christians in Ireland um, in the sixth century or seventh century. Why should we be surprised to have Christians in the Horn of Africa? Because geographically, that's actually much closer, and there's m many more trade routes that connect the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Indian Ocean. And if we know one thing, it is that it's not just goods that travel, but people, religions, ideas, knowledge. So it's, uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is in a way that the whole historical discipline has been set up to center and recenter Europe time and time again. And I remember when I was a student that most of the maps of Christianity in the Middle Ages they, they do include the sliver of the Holy Land and then they hack off basically directly after um, Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, as I said at the very beginning, um, this, this professor who taught me my medieval history just had this map that stretched from Ireland to China uh, to the Horn of Africa. And, uh, you know, that just blew my mind because I was like, how can we have like this impression and just like, if it's like a, I don't know, if it's like a piece of like a, what's the word, like a, a clover, like a clover um, with three, uh, what's the word now? Three um, leaves, on, three, three, three leaves, leaves. Yeah. yeah. Yes, how can we only focus on one if there's two others? That is one of the reasons why I believe your book is so important because it's challenging all those assumptions, making sure that we get all the leaves into our bouquet I know I sound like a broken record, but it is that important. So in your estimation, what does your work do for future scholars? What questions does your book inspire? And where do you think future scholars go with your work? Uh, well, I hope it gives people a springboard to like do several things. Like, I mean, um, I focused, of course, on this very elite history and this entanglement with Europe and trying to refute also these Eurocentric narratives of needing, like Ethiopians needing technology and knowledge and whatnot. But I mean, uh, it would also be incredibly fascinating if somebody were to do a more deep dive onto how this multi-faith, highly heterogeneous um, kingdom functioned, you know, like the different groups and rule and whatnot, because at the moment, a lot of it is very much on the surface level. And it's privileging, of course, also the perspective of the Christian kings and the, you know, like uh, the, the, the Christian elite. Um, and we've had this in many other uh, subfields of medi uh, medieval history nowadays, where, um, you know, like uh, trying to get away from just the history of the big men, you know, um, so that would be absolutely fascinating. But uh, so together with my colleague, Felix Lam Jürger, who's in Knoxville, 
um, we're actually like now doing a series of panels at like the next uh, Medieval Academy of America meeting about how also in, Ethiopia, uh, in Solomonic Ethiopia, like this remembrance of the past of Aksum, you know, late antiquity was carried over into, um, into these later periods. So with the Solomonic dynasty, basically like reviving and remodeling itself um, which is uh, in a way uh, uh, like a type of renaissance because you find that similarly also for example in Europe where you have this rediscovery of an ancient well it was never really forgotten obviously but you have this repurposing and reinvention of like a deeper past and I think that's endlessly fascinating as well and that's mm. questions that people are only now beginning to ask like you know, because uh, it's uh, th that also gives you new questions about identity and how people propagate themselves and whatnot. So that would be like really cool, and I'm I'm eagerly waiting for that. And also maybe like tying in archaeological and art historical research with this, because I speak in the book about these monasteries and churches that were being built, but um, like not many of them have been excavated. Like none. Actually, none of them have been excavated. There have been some preliminary surveys, but mostly in the 1960s and 70s. And I mean, uh, as somebody who's very interested in material culture, um, like what we could learn from these sites if they were properly excavated, um, the finds that there might be hidden in the earth, uh, that also is just like tantalizing to think about. All in all, Ethiopia's diplomatic outreach to Latin Europe also shines a new light onto a late medieval African dynasty at the height of its power. The image emerging from the textual and material record is not one of an indigent, powerless, or even passively receptive kingdom in the late Middle Ages. Instead, we find a mighty African realm addressing its peers in the voice of a self-confident Christian empire. Solomonic rulers encountered the world on their own terms. When diplomacy increasingly yielded very little in the latter part of the 15th century, Ethiopian kings and high-ranking nobles would eventually reroute their efforts. Instead of sending official diplomatic missions, they would detain itinerant foreigners, directly import and acquire dozens of foreign religious objects, and even commission stunningly beautiful works of art places as far away as Crete, Flanders, and France. That is a story best told in another book. So, in closing, a little tease about your next book. We, you mentioned it earlier, but I'll ask it again. What is the next book for you, and where does it stand? So the next book actually builds on also something that I first began thinking about in my PhD, namely these objects that had been brought both from the Mediterranean, but also as far as um, like early 16th century Flanders and Germany to Ethiopia. And we do have these amazing objects. So for example, there's a painted enamel, which is a type of really expensive um, uh, like art, um, where you have two kings seated uh, next to each other. It was probably made in France in the very early 1500s. And it has Goethe's writing 
So it has Ethiopian writing, and the writing actually says, this is the king Naut, and this is the king Lipnadingal. Um, and there's evidence in an Ethiopian chronicle that actually, like, the wife of Naut and the mother of Lipnadingal had this object made all the way in France as something to basically, because um, her son was very young when he succeeded his father on the throne, and there was a bit of a, you know, like, um, discussion of who was to inherit the throne, who was put, put on the throne. So this apparently appears to have been an object that sanctioned his kingship to some extent, or that also, you know, his mom was clearly invested in acquiring and showing it off to show that, like, he is the true heir of his father and not any of the other potential contenders to the throne. Um, but that also makes us ask all of these exciting questions about the reach and the possibilities, especially of like in this case, an Ethiopian royal woman. You also have evidence of Ethiopian princesses at that time importing icons from the Eastern Mediterranean um, and using them as donations for monasteries that they themselves establish. Because you have a moment where like this strong kingship is comparatively weakened because uh, more and more young kings, young boys are put on the throne, which in scholarship has been read as this sort of story of decline but I think it's just a diversification of power. Like you have more people who can do things to demonstrate their power. And this is also where it tacks into um, the tremendous changes in Ethiopian art at that time, because I think what we find here, this is the late 15th, early 16th century, um, is a royal court where many people now have much more influence and try to establish their influence, power, uh, religious, um, like, through religious donations and through innovation uh, and even outbidding one another. Um, so instead of, you know, like this old scholarship narrative of an Italian, uh, I don't know, master teaching people how to paint, I think we have a court that is actively soliciting and detaining foreigners to make them paint in all of these new ways that also once again demonstrate their own global reach. Um, and, and, and just basically like, I don't know, outbidding one another to show uh, just, you know, how much power they now also hold, like both religious and worldly. And what is the timetable for that book, do you think? Uh, well, it depends. Like at the moment, I'm, you know, um, teaching a lot and uh, I am non-tenure track uh, contingent faculty. So uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm applying for numerous scholarships uh, to uh, help me get maybe uh, like a, a year off of teaching so I can really focus on the writing because it is like with the teaching load and everything, it is very hard to, to, to really do the deep dive and the focused kind of research, but also writing work that you need to do to, to, to develop a really like compelling and coherent narrative. Um, so hopefully if I get one of these fellowships, um, hopefully that will be out by 2023. Well, fingers and toes are crossed for that. Um, Thank you. I'm sure that book will take you back to Ethiopia again. And just sort of curious about your thoughts about what's happening in the country right now. It is incredibly hard for me to speak about because um, I spent most of my time in Ethiopia in the north and I'm a graduate of Michele University and 
anybody who's been following what's going on. I mean, it's for, for very personal reasons, I think it's not a surprise that I've been horrifically worried about friends and colleagues. Um, but also it, both in Tigray, but also of course in other places, because I also have friends and colleagues in Gondar, for example, in Bahedar. So it's it's been, it's been difficult um, and I am still very worried. Um, and the communication blackout is, has been getting to me for a long time. And I, the last thing I think this war needs is yet another Ferengi woman to try to determine like or push a specific view um, on politics uh, because that has been a big issue as well locally in Ethiopia like narrations stories about foreign involvement and whatnot but I think what I can say at this point is that like, it's been devastating uh, both personally and uh, of course like also intellectually because uh, in Michele there was a vibrant academic community um, and Michele University at the moment, of course, is obviously non-functional. Um, and that is just hard. I'm hoping and praying that peace will prevail. Yes. Thank you so very much for your time. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I am conscious of the fact that you come to the table not fully well. And so I appreciate your energy, your time, more importantly, your scholarship and your hard work and what you're doing to reshape the conversation about African agency. I am very grateful, very thankful. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is absolutely mine. And I look forward to our next conversation. Recollect is a production of Recollect Media. To connect with Professor Krebs, you can follow her on Twitter at K-R-E-B-S-V-E-R-E-N-A or visit her website at verenacrebs.com. To purchase medieval Ethiopian kingship craft and diplomacy with Latin Europe, you can visit Paul Grave Macmillan at P-A-L-G-A-R-V-E dot com or visit our recollection at bookshop.org. To learn more about our other shows and events, including Sky is Black and the Pan-African Food Festival, please visit our website at www.recollect.media. History is not just his story or her story or my story. It is our story. It is with us. It is alive. And it will survive as long as the truth shall live. Never forget Never, ever forget who we are.